0: This term, we're looking at what are sometimes called teachable moments, uh, moments which are turning points, moments which are places of change and discovery. Teachable moments. We had a teachable moment. Uh, my son Sam and I, uh, I think last summer it was. Um, I uh, we had we had a patio which was decking. And in one weekend, two people had quite serious accidents on it. So we decided had one person stepped through it, and another person gashed their knee in the same weekend. So we thought, it's gotta go. And Sam is incredibly servant-hearted. He really is. He's very happy to get his hands dirty and get stuck in. And so we borrowed, uh, we bought a jemmy, we borrowed some sledgehammers, and the teachable moment was me teaching him proudly as a father teaches his son to use a sledgehammer for the first time. Just as my father taught me to use a sledgehammer for the first time, that was great fun because it was smashing up the piano at home, which I hated. So that was my first opportunity to use a sledgehammer. I had a great time. Uh, My mum didn't know that we were doing it. So when she came home, there was an interesting conversation between my parents. But that was my first uh, opportunity to use a sledgehammer. So the teachable moment was, you know, okay, Sam, you lift it and you allow the weight of the hammer uh, to swing. You don't swing with it. You just let it drop. So the weight of the hammer does the work. So I'd explain that all. I was feeling proud of myself. We worked together for a couple of hours. We dismantled most of it. And then I had to write a sermon. So I had to go away and pray. And it was good that I went away and prayed because I was in a very peaceful place, given what happened next. Because my pride at having taught him well didn't actually transpire into him learning well. Because the very last bit, there were battens attached to uh, to the concrete at the bottom. So we got rid of most of it. And Sam, I think, probably got a bit frustrated with the last few bits attached to the concrete. And he did say that he started to swing harder and harder. The problem with the sledgehammer is when you swing it, you very easily lose your balance. So for the last few bits, he swung really, really hard and missed, and lost his balance. Now, that wouldn't have mattered so much if he hadn't had a complete brain fade, and uh, he was swinging hard like this, two feet away from the the double-glazed French windows. And it mattered even more because he was swinging towards the double-glazed French windows. So he swung really hard, lost his balance, and the sledgehammer went through both panels of the double-glazed French windows. So having been a really proud father, doing just as my dad had done with me, teaching him how to use a sledgehammer, um, my wife came to tell me what had happened and that I needed to calm myself because it was, frankly, a 400-pound mistake that he'd just made. So it was a teachable moment. It was a teachable moment for me as a father, knowing not to overreact, nor to underreact, try and get it right. It was a teachable moment for Sam. I don't think he will do that again. At least not on a property we're occupying will he do that again. Teachable moments. Teachable moments. How does Jesus... Uh, use moments that happen in the lives of the disciples as they're traveling along how does he use those to help them grow we want to begin by looking at the f word that made one or two of you look up failure it's a big word isn't it it lands with us Uh, We hate to think of failure. We hate to think of failing. It's such a hard word. It takes us to hard places where it seems that nothing is to be gained. None of us like to fail. None of us like to be branded a failure. And those times when we failed are often memories we don't go near. They're places where we failed. We're often places we don't revisit. Even just the mention of the F word has brought some disappointments close to the surface. So even as I use the word failure, I realise this is difficult, sensitive territory. Everyone here has got some scar tissue around that word and the memories it brings to the surface. Nevertheless, I want to look this evening about how Jesus sees even failure, Jesus even sees our failures as teachable moments and how he draws Peter beyond failure. My first point is, Peter's failure was real. Let's not sugarcoat it. He'd been called by Jesus to be the rock on which the church was to be built, and yet he failed spectacularly. When Jesus needed the disciples to stand with him in prayer in Gethsemane, Peter and the other disciples fell asleep. Not just once, but three times, according to Matthew 26. So when Jesus Jesus needed them most, when he was feeling overwhelmed, stressed out and afraid of what was coming, they went missing. They fell asleep. Not once, but three times. And you can hear the disappointment in Jesus as he comes back and finds them yet again asleep. Had they been awake in Gethsemane and had they been alert on the way to Jerusalem, they'd have realized that Jesus was embracing the cross, embracing this most difficult of roads. And yet John 18:10 tells us that when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter tries to prevent him being arrested. He cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest. If you think about that, that is a serious, aggressive blow that Peter's just struck. It could have killed someone. What does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter, saying, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? John 18, 11. I am walking this road to the cross, Peter. Do not stop me. Do not get in the way. The last healing miracle recorded in uh, Luke's gospel is Jesus healing the ear of the uh, high priest's servant. So he's made it very clear, I am walking this road. But even then, Peter follows Jesus, trying to work out where he's being held, trying to keep abreast of what's happening. Maybe, I think, he hoped to rescue Jesus. But whatever Peter thought he was doing, he wasn't obeying Jesus, his master. He manages to blag his way into Annas' household, where, according to John 18, Jesus was being held. He uses a local disciple to get access. But he's not there because he's obeying Jesus. He's pursuing his own purpose. And it's while he's in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire with others, the peace comes to deny that he even knows Jesus, not once, but three times. Now, there were other failures, like standing in Jesus's way and daring to rebuke the one he's just named as the Messiah, that for misunderstanding what it means to be the Messiah, there were other failures, and yes, there were other successes, like walking on the water to Jesus. But these successive bitter failures happen right at the end. Matthew 26, 74 tells us that in that courtyard by the fire, when challenged, Peter begins to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. It was then the cock crew. Peter realizes what he's done and he goes outside and weeps bitterly. On the last night, Peter didn't stand with prayer in Jesus himself. He didn't lead the other disciples to do so. He didn't obey and resisted Jesus' arrest violently, nearly killing someone. Peter didn't obey Jesus and followed, seemingly looking for a way to rescue him. And Peter finishes by calling down curses upon himself, swearing three times that he never even knew Jesus. The failures were pretty terrible. He promised he would never leave Jesus. He promised he would go further, do more than the others. And in some ways he did, yet he disowned Jesus at the last disobeyed Jesus from the moment the soldiers appeared here and he was desolate when he realised what he'd done. The picture we leave Peter with in that night is one of total failure. If Peter's failure was terrible, second point, Jesus needs him to understand why it happened. According to John 21.2, there were only six disciples with Peter in Galilee. Now, there are very few occasions when the disciples don't all appear together as a single coherent group. That makes me want to understand why. It's quite possible uh, because the disciples often fought for prominence, often fought for position. Um, It's quite possible that there's been a real conflict about who actually is to lead them. Peter had failed spectacularly. Maybe six of them have gone with Peter because they still accept him as the leader. The others, they're not sure. Peter's still a leader. You can tell that from the fact he can persuade them to go fishing. But it seems that not everyone is following. For whatever reason, leaving aside Judas, four of the disciples aren't there. So it's quite possible, probable, that Peter's leadership role has been questioned. It would be surprising if it wasn't, after his significant failures be surprising if his credibility with others wasn't damaged guess some were questioning whether Jesus still wanted Peter who disowned him to lead after those denials yes he might have gone further than the others but he was also screwed up much more than the others and probably Peter's questioning it himself questioning whether he can still lead Questioning what is his place in God's kingdom? What is his place in following Jesus? So they've gone back to where it all started. They've gone back, or at least Peter has, gone back to what they were doing before the Lord called them. They're in the same place where Jesus first called them, doing the same thing. They're back to fishing. And there are all kinds of echoes of their first call. They've fished all night and they've caught nothing. Jesus again shows him, shows them that he's a better fisherman than all of them. And then they catch so many fish, it almost sinks their boat. They gather on the shore where Jesus is cooking them breakfast. And we have a sense, I think, of that breakfast happening almost in awed silence, that it's great to be together. But how no one can quite start the conversation nobody quite knows why Jesus is there but in passing please note this it shows that God really cherishes relationship come and have breakfast is Jesus's first word to them it's not a downloaded strategy it's not a let's get to business it's not a commission it's come and have breakfast it's Let's be together and cherish this moment. From the very beginning, we see that. Uh, When Adam and Eve were in the garden, we're told that the Lord God came and walked with them in the cool of the day. In the cool of the day, in the Middle East particularly, was the time of socialising, it's the time for being with friends. God has always prioritised and cherished friendship with his people. At the end of the meal, breakfast is done. And that's when the teachable moment happens. That's where Jesus gets into the teachable moment with Peter. He addresses Peter's failure before them all. Why is it public, you might think? Couldn't you do this in private? Surely that made it harder for Peter. Well, yes, it did. But I think simply because Peter's failures were known and his leadership role was in question, It had to be before all of them. They had to see what the Lord Jesus had to say. That's why his restoration, particularly his restoration to leadership, has to be within the context of the group as well. If Peter is once again to lead them, they need to know that he is still the person that Jesus has chosen. And Peter needs to know that as well, despite all that's happened. Verse 15, Jesus says to Peter before them all, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Why does this matter? Well, because this is the root of one, one root of Peter's failures. Rivalry, ambition, comparison, competition. We often read in the Gospels that they're comparing with one another, trying to decide who's the greatest. That rivalry, that ambition is, is at the heart, I think, of Peter's failures. We see Peter boasting sometimes that he will go further than anyone else. For example, Matthew 26, 33 tells us Peter saying, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus then predicts his denial. And Peter comes back in verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So Peter is boastful at times. He is determined to go further and do more than anyone else, determined to show that he is worthy, worthy of Jesus, worthy of his leadership role, determined to show that to the others, yes, determined to show that to himself as well, because he's not sure of it. He's trying to live up to his billing. And that drive, rooted in rivalry, competition, ambition, is what leads him to such desperate failure. He disobeys Jesus. He appears to be trying to rescue Jesus, rescue him, presumably from the cross, and then he disowns him. All because he's trying to do more and be more than the others. That's why this first question matters so much. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's addressing the rivalry, the ambition, the comparison. Jesus is asking Peter, competition and rivalry at the heart of your failure. Do you get that? That trying to be more and do more than others. is part of the reason you went so far astray. Peter only answers part of the question. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. He's humble enough to refuse to make any boasts, to answer just part of the question. Jesus responds, feed my lambs. Peter hasn't promised to do more, to be more or go further. So Jesus is happy to restore him as a teacher. That's what feeding means here. So Peter's failures were real. Jesus needs him to understand why it happened. And third, Jesus reminds Peter what qualifies him to serve. If Peter wants to avoid similar failures, he has to be motivated by love. By love, not rivalry or ambition. Jesus asks Peter again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter responds again, and Jesus this time restores him as a pastor Take care of my sheep. Pastor, a shepherd. The third restoration calls Peter to feed my sheep. So Peter is restored both as a shepherd and as a teacher, both to the youngest, the lambs, and to the mature, the sheep. It's a threefold restoration to answer Peter's threefold denial. Three denials, three new affirmations, declarations of love. But there's more going on under the surface. Two different words for love are used in the passage. Now, scholars have got into lots of debate about how significant this is, because the two words overlap, at least to some extent, in their meaning. But that's forgetting that we're witnessing a conversation. If two similar words are used in a conversation, there's nearly always a significant distinction that's being made. For example, if if I were to say to my wife, Sarah, Sarah, I adore you. And she were to reply, Mike, you know that I love you. We can all hear a distinction has been made, even though the words have similar meanings, because adore is generally stronger than love. That's what's going on in this conversation. They don't use the same word for love. In his first question, Jesus uses the word agape, the word that means selfless, self-giving love. The word describes the love that prompts Jesus to wash the disciples' feet, the love that takes Jesus to the cross, the love that should characterize the mutuality and sharing at the heart of marriage. That's the word that Jesus uses. Peter responds with a different word, philo, the word that denotes friendship. Not even in this word will Peter dare now to boast. So when Jesus says, do you love me with a selfless love greater than the others? Peter replies, Lord, you know I love you like a friend. We can hear the distinction that's being made. Peter won't claim to go further than the others, won't claim to be more selfless than the others, won't claim to be more like Jesus than the others. In the second question, Jesus no longer challenges Peter's rivalry and competition. He simply asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, the word is agape, selfless, self-giving love. Peter again responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you like a friend. Philo. The third time, Jesus changes the word he uses. He uses instead the word that Peter has chosen. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me like a friend? Philo. We're told literally this grieves Peter. I think this is the moment when he breaks. I think it touches the scar tissue that's come from such a terrible failure. So I think, I think in that moment, he realizes just how great is his failure. So I think Peter's next words, grieved a really pretty roar. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. What more can I say, he's saying. There's nothing I can hide from you, Lord. You know that I love you, that despite my failures, You know that I love you. What more can I say? At that point, I think he is utterly broken. After the third restoration, to both care for and feed Jesus' sheep as a shepherd and as a teacher, Jesus gives him a promise in verses 18 to 19. It doesn't on the face of it look like a promise, but it is a promise. It's a promise that Peter prophetically, Jesus is speaking, will never fail him again. He's saying, when next you face Martin and Peter, I promise you, you will stand the test. You will, you will be faithful to the very end. And then finally, it's a new beginning. Finally, it's the same words with which Peter, Peter was called by Jesus on that shoreline a few hundred yards away, many years, well, many three years before. Command to Peter is follow me. Let's begin again. I think this is both literal and spiritual. Verse 20 suggests that Jesus has started walking and Peter has fallen behind them. It's so on the same shoreline, just round the bay, same words. Same place, new start. The restoration is complete. Restoration to friendship with God and sharing a meal. Restoration to leadership as a shepherd and as a teacher of both young and old. And yet Peter's not there yet. He looks to see the other disciple and says, well, what about him? You just told me that I get, I'm gonna be faithful to the end, I'm going to die as a martyr. But what about him? Still that instinct, still that competitive rivalry, ambition is still there. He's restored and yet he is not yet perfect. And Jesus says, basically, it's nothing to do with you. In all of the Narnia stories, do you remember that Aslan the Lion will never talk about anyone else's call other than yours? because that's nothing to do with you. And that really comes from this incident. Jesus says, it's nothing to do with you. You have to put that to one side. You just have to be faithful in following me. What might all this mean for us today? It means first, don't do the devil's work for him. Don't do the devil's work for him. Revelation 12:10 describes the enemy as the one who accuses the accuser of our brothers and sisters. <clears throat> yes, we have to come to terms with our failures. Yes, we might need to work through some stuff. We might have to look hard in the mirror and reckon with what we've done, but we also have to remember the reality of grace. We are forgiven. Once we have repented, we are forgiven. Sometimes repentance needs some work. Sometimes it is a journey to reflect on what went wrong and why, which is something of what Jesus is doing with Peter in this teachable moment. Sometimes we have to get to a place of remorse. Sometimes we come back to things more than once. We have to reflect on it so that we know that we've processed it, so that we know that we have learned from it as Peter does here. But once we've repented and received forgiveness, we have to live in that reality. Romans 8.1 reminds us, therefore, therefore, given all Jesus has done, therefore, given the cross, given the resurrection, given new life, therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have to receive that reality, not just as a promise, but as an experienced reality. We have to reckon with the F word. We have to reckon with our failures, yes, but once we've done so, Even if it's quite a journey, once we've done so, we need to live without condemnation. You need to imagine you're dressed head to foot in Kevlar. You are bulletproof. Don't do the enemy's work for him. Don't live under condemnation. Don't perpetually accuse yourself. Don't perpetually beat yourself up for something that you have laid before the foot of the cross and you have repented and received forgiveness. Don't live under condemnation. Bring your failures into the light of grace so that, yes, you can learn from them, so, yes, you can work through them, however long that journey is. But once you've done that, no refuse to allow them to continue to overshadow you. Romans 8 says no condemnation. No one has the right to condemn you once you have brought that to the foot of the cross. No accusation can be brought against you. No one and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus your Lord. You are bulletproof. You are dressed from head to toe in heavenly Kevlar. So face failures, yes, but don't continue to live under their shadow. That is not the light you're called to live in. Don't do the enemy's work for him. And it means second, failure doesn't rule you out of the game. Honestly, if it's a significant failure, it might change what God will trust you with. But here we see Peter, after grievous failures, grievous failures being restored. Restored not just to friendship with God, but restored also to significant responsibility as a shepherd and as a leader. Sometimes there's some unlearning to do. Sometimes when we've failed, we we have concluded stuff about ourselves that we need to unlearn that this is what happens when i do something like this that when i've screwed up and i reacted like that that was the right way to react when it might not have been sometimes we fail and we conclude stuff about ourselves that we need to unlearn where might you have allowed failure to tell you there's no prospect of friendship with god Where might you have allowed failure to tell you that you've got no place on God's team because this is the kind of thing that happens when you're in charge? Where might you have allowed failure to tell you you have no role in God's kingdom? Those are lies. They're lies. We shouldn't live under them. See the amazing grace shown to Peter after really terrible failures after disowning Jesus three times. Here again today, God's call to you to serve. If you love Jesus, you're qualified. Nothing beyond that is needed. He will pour out his power. He will give you grace gifts. Nothing beyond a willingness to serve and a love for God is necessary. However much you might have failed. How often we might have stuffed up. We are called back to friendship with God. We are called to service on God's team. And the only qualification is loving Jesus. Whatever has ruled you out of the game, hear again God's call to you today and respond as Peter did. And maybe there's some unlearning to do. And it means, finally, don't waste your failures. Don't waste your failures. Peter was never the same again. This teachable moment addressing his failures was transformational. Transformational for Peter himself, but also for the church and its mission and all who would come to faith through him. So it might be for you might be for me, might be for us as a community. I can guarantee you that everyone here stuffs up regularly. I reckon we've all stuffed up seriously sometime or other. Some memory that you don't even, you know, you wince when you're thinking about it. The challenge is not to waste your failures. The invitation is to ask the Lord Jesus to use them as a teachable moment, as he did for Peter, to enable us by his Holy Spirit to find in them leverage for change and for transformation. Failure can so very often be creative, it helps, it causes, or even forces us to change. Honestly when you think I if I talk about my ministry I would say I've learned much more by failing than by succeeding It certainly changed my heart before the Lord So don't waste the opportunity for change that's wrapped up even in the most painful of memories This teachable moment was transformational for Peter How is God longing to work in and through your failures to bring you even more fully into the likeness of Jesus as well? Don't be afraid of the F word. Take your stand on the cross, take your stand on the love of God, and look it full in the face. You might need help to do that. I've often needed help to do that. You might need people to accompany you on the journey but it's a creative place. It's a place where grace can be found. It's a place where inspiration and God's presence and power can be found. So don't do the enemy's job for him. No condemnation. Do you hear that? No condemnation. Yes, you failed. Of course we all have. We don't need to be terrified about that. We just need to bring it to the foot of the cross and say, there's no condemnation. I'm going to grow from this. I'm going to grow through this. I'm going to allow Jesus to use it as a teachable moment to grow me in grace. Don't allow yourself to be ruled out of God's team because that's not how God sees you. God has a role. God has a place for you on his team. And don't waste your failures. There's so often creative places where we grow, where we learn, and where we go much deeper with God. Because often the places where we run out, where our own strength is gone and we have to depend on the Lord, we have to lean into him. So don't allow yourself to keep accusing yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Bring it to the foot of the cross. Don't rule yourself out of the game because God has a place for you on his team. And don't waste your failures. Use them as places to allow God to grow you in grace.